Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Passion Pit is a Boston-based group of 20-somethings who, even though they weren't even born until halfway through the decade, have developed a major obsession with a certain type of sound from the 1980s. Where did you come across, I mean, let's face it, if you're 22, 23, you grew up in the era of grunge and guitars. What made you go back to something, or what helped you discover something that was so keyboard-based? That seems fresh to us, where the whole grunge guitar band thing is tired and played out to us. Mm. So, freshest thing for us is 30-year-old analog keyboards. How did you discover the, the analog sound, considering that you're from a digital generation? For, for me, personally, it was stuff like switched on Bach and the uh, genre stuff and that it's and this like bands like uh, Boards of Canada that are newer but that had that same kind of analog sound and it's like it's sound out of tune and and you realize that places it so well in an an era it's that out of tune drifting synth sound (laughs) and it's so interesting and warm you're the only 22 year old guy that I have ever heard quote bring up the title switched on Bach 1969 best selling classical album Walter slash Wendy (laughs) Carlos yeah Yeah, Walter Wendy (laughs) and uh, who else uh, no, she's Wendy. she's Wendy now. Well, then. She was Walter then, yeah. Wendy now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Took the money he made from the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, she's went another. away, came back as Wendy. That's what actually tripped me onto it, was the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, that uh, funeral march. At the beginning? Yeah, yeah, that's like, could get lost in that forever. Now, this conversation with the guys in Passion Pit got me thinking about all the other new synth-heavy bands. There's MGMT, there's Owl City, there's... Empire of the Sun, Caribou, Phoenix, Beck has been turned on to these sounds, and and Moby. Well, check it out. Are you still making records in your apartment? How do the neighbors feel about this? Well, I have a two-bedroom apartment in the Lower East Side, and I sleep in the smaller bedroom, and the slightly larger bedroom is my studio, but I've had it soundproofed. So there's a, it's there's about 3,000 pounds of sand under the floor, and the walls are insulated, so... My neighbors, for the most part, don't mind. What kind of gear have you found recently? Anything interesting? Mm, Yeah, I mean, thanks to eBay, I found tons and tons of things. Everything from old analog drum machines to old spring reverb units, uh, tape delays, old synths. Yeah, I'm sort of a hoarder when it comes to old equipment. All this new music has led to a pseudo-revival in a sound that we used to call technopop. But what was... Technopop. Who were the main artists? Where did it come from? And where did it go? Let's find out. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's Passion Pit with The Reeling. It's from an album called Manners. And to a lot of people, that sounds fresh and different. And to others, it's more like, hey, the 80s are back. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and I want to spend this show putting some of the new synth-based music into proper historical context. What we're hearing is a number of artists simultaneously and independently 
discovering a specific genre of 80s music. Back then, it was called technopop, although synth-pop was also acceptable. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. But whatever the opinion, it was a very important part of alt-rock history. So, if you're into these new bands and you want to know where these sounds came from, sit down. And if you remember the technopop era, because maybe you were there, you're going to be reintroduced to some old friends. Now, by the end of the 70s, the punk explosion of the middle part of the decade had begun to burn itself out in all its anger and energy. The big thing was new wave, this catch-all phrase to describe some of the music that was coming after punk. And the best definition of new wave I've ever heard was, it wasn't punk, but by listening to it, you could tell that punk had happened. See, punk had opened everyone's eyes to possibilities. The message was, you didn't have to be the world's greatest musician. But if you had the desire and something to say, well, then you should say it, damn it. At around this time, keyboard synthesizers, inventions that had been in development since the early 1940s, started to fall in price. Instead of being confined to a studio or a lab on a university campus somewhere, it was possible to pick up a reasonably powerful keyboard for a reasonable price. These synthesizers could not only make noises that had never been heard before, but they made sounds that no one had ever even imagined before. And with a little experimenting, you could build a kind of music that was utterly unique. Yes, that's Donna Summer, and yes, that's a disco song. I Feel Love from 1977, produced by an Italian guy named Giorgio Moroder. Hugely influential approach to the use of these new keyboards. The technology behind that track grabbed the attention of a lot of people, including a lot of disco haters. The mechanical beat, the programmed synthesizer pulse. In 1977, nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, sounded this high-tech and this futuristic. The reason lay in the waveform. See, up until this point, all musical instruments generated sounds that could be represented with curvy or spiky waveforms. Synthesizers could generate sounds with square waveforms. This made them sound artificial and unreal. And when wannabe musicians started experimenting with these new machines, they discovered that they didn't have to be great musicians. You know, you twiddle a couple of knobs on these new machines and you sounded brilliant. It was easy to be awesome. You didn't have to be Pink Floyd, some huge prog rock band to access this technology. This tech was getting cheaper, easier to use, and more versatile every week. And by the late 70s, it was possible to make a full, professional-sounding song in your bedroom. Now combine that with the punk sense that anyone should be able to make music, and synthesizers became a great equalizer for a great number of wannabe musicians. The pioneering all-electronic German band Kraftwerk from 1978. That was a major hit single in many corners of the world. It's called The Model. Again, really inspiring stuff. Pop music made by machines, by robots, essentially. After the all-too-real intensity of punk rock and the brutal recession of the late 70s and early 80s, the idea of dehumanizing music by turning it over to machines became pretty appealing to some people. 
It was a very interesting artistic statement. But it's not that this music wasn't emotional. It could be. But the emotions it conveyed were pretty cold and bleak and paranoid and hollow. And again, this was in complete step with the political, social, and economic environment of the day. Recession, unemployment, the Cold War. This sound also came with its own look. In fact, it was the antithesis of scruffy punk fashion. Craftwork, for example, wore suits, had short hair, sometimes wore ties. And this guy, Gary Newman, looked like some kind of cold-blooded, detached alien. That's Gary Newman with Our Friends Electric from June of 1979. Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters thinks he's a god. So does Trent Reznor. And Jack White's band, The Dead Weather, recorded a version of that song. That was the track that really kicked off the techno-pop era when it hit number one on the British charts. It also became a sizable hit in North America. And suddenly it seemed that everybody wanted to ditch their guitars and get into the 21st century early by buying cheapo synthesizers and making the music of the future. Keyboards and electronics, not guitars, became the focus of this sound. Okay, now we need to get into the technopop of the early 80s. That's next. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Some people like to divide the original Technopop era into two waves. The first was from 1977 through to about the middle of 1980. That was when the cold, robotic approach was in vogue. Songs like this formed the very basic foundations of what we would later call industrial music. Warm, leatherette, hear the crushing steel, feel the steering wheel, hear the crushing steel, feel the steering wheel, warm. That's the one-man band called The Normal. The guy is Daniel Miller. He made that single in his bedroom with some cheap keyboards. He pressed up some singles, sold them on consignment through a bunch of record stores, 500 copies became 1,000, and then 5,000, and I've heard as high as 25,000. This made Daniel enough money to follow an idea he had. What if there were a record label that released nothing but music by synthesizer bands? He called his label Mute, and one of the very first bands he signed was a group from Basildon, England, who had recently thrown away all the guitars and had bought synthesizers. And unlike Gary Newman, who insisted on keeping a flesh-and-blood drummer, this group used recorded beats, played off a reel-to-reel tape machine on stage. They were named after a French fashion magazine, Depeche Mode. That's the very first Depeche Mode single, New Life from late 1980. And it's songs like that 
which began to lead us away from the first wave of technopop, the cold, paranoid, mechanized, robotic material of Kraftwerk and Gary Newman. And we got into our second wave, which features the kind of electronic music you could dance to. Synthesizer music didn't have to be all gloomy and detached. It could also be joyous and fun. As the recession began to dissipate and as optimism began to return, these sounds were used to spread word of a bright, clean future. The world is getting better. Let's dance. Let's fall in love. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, the all-electronic group from Liverpool who had a string of hits through the early and middle 80s. And like Depeche Mode, they had a happy, almost naive worldview. There was an explosion of these kinds of bands. Yaz, Erasure, The Pet Shop Boys, Eurythmics. Many of them had this two-person model. You had the singer or front person, and at the back, the composer, programmer, operator. And they were all very stylish, which was perfect because there was this new thing called MTV, and it needed to be fed. See, when MTV first went on the air in August of 1981, they had a grand total of 250 videos, most of which were from Britain. So the UK had this long history of bands performing on TV, so they had a big backlog of stuff to choose from. So until North American record labels and bands started investing in making videos, a big source of programming for MTV were clips from these stylish synth-pop bands from the UK. And suddenly, all this fun, fresh music came flooding across the Atlantic. There was Duran Duran, and the Human League, and Blamage, and the Thompson Twins, and Soft Cell, and these guys, Tears for Fears. Tears for Fears from their 1983 debut album, The Hurting. They would later become massively popular with their second album, Songs from the Big Chair. Now, as with any musical trend, the longer it went on, the more it evolved. And the more it evolved, the more it split into different streams. A look at the offspring of Technopop is next. By 1984, Technopop had evolved from being this cold, robotic music into something that covered a wide range of emotions and styles and fashion senses. For example, New Order had evolved from the dark, guitar-based Joy Division into a happier, dancier, synth and drum machine-driven world. Their 1983 single, Blue Monday, became the biggest selling 12-inch in the history of the universe. Other artists began to emerge. Howard Jones, a one-man band, thanks to his arsenal of keyboards, sequencers, and samplers. Same thing with Thomas Dolby. There was Bronsky Beat, Aha, Yellow, Elphaville, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They all descended from the original technopop scene. One of the biggest offshoots was something called New Romanticism. This rose from some of the nightclubs in London where they played a lot of technopop music. Taking cues from David Bowie and Roxy Music and Brian Eno, these groups made very stylish stuff and combined it with a series of looks that were just as important as the music. Duran Duran came from this stew. So did Culture Club. In fact, Boy George used to work the coat check at one of these clubs. Then there was Visage, Adam and the Ants, Spando Ballet. And this was one of the central songs to the whole sound and movement. It's a 1980 release from Ultravox. It's called Vienna.
Vienna from Ultravox, an important track in the new romantic movement, one of the offshoots from the original Technopop era. Like I said earlier, industrial music also has its roots in Technopop. Because keyboards and drum machines could be programmed to sound so brutal and heavy, it was inevitable that some musicians would take this route. There was Cold Wave, a French and Belgian style of minimalist synthesized dance music played by bands who released a couple of 7-inch singles before disappearing forever. And related to that was electric body music, which was equal parts industrial and dance. Others went in the completely opposite direction, ambient music, with its focus on atmospherics and sonic textures and often a complete lack of beat, grew out of the synthesizer revolution as well. Another offshoot was Eurodisco, which was headquartered mostly in Italy and Germany. That scene later influenced a lot of late 80s British pop like Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue. In North America, synth-pop influences settled in Chicago, where the sounds became integral to the rise of house music. And let's not forget about techno, the darker, heavier cousin of house. At the heart of techno's DNA is technopop on crystal meth. When grunge and hip-hop came along in the early 1990s, general interest in synth-pop really kind of just declined, and it stayed that way for years. It did, however, live in some respects in the music of Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, Radiohead, and Bjork. But as for 80s-style techno-pop, it was done. Or was it? But starting somewhere around late 2004, these early 80s sounds began to creep back into popular music. The Killers were part of this. They were unabashedly influenced by 80s groups like Duran Duran. And when that first album was released, it sounded new and fresh, yet still familiar because of its 80s influences. This continued with songs from people like Britney Spears. Pop artists who were looking for new, fresh sounds used producers who were tired of all the available digital keyboard sounds of the day, so they started looking back at the 80s for old vintage sounds. This picked up a lot of speed over the next few years, especially after MGMT's Oracular Spectacular album became a big success. The number of synth-pop bands has since exploded, which brings us to the current techno-pop revival. Meanwhile, the price of vintage synthesizers has skyrocketed. These old analog machines have sounds that you just can't get from modern digital ones. Let's end with a fast clip from Passion Pit talking about those old keyboards. Where, where did you find those analog keyboards? Because they stopped making them for years. People think they're junk, so they throw them out, and they prefer the sterile, digitally sampled keyboards, which sound terrible. Yeah, but once in a while I see why, because when we're on stage, there's a lot of tuning going on. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes the sounds much more, I mean, there's more depth to it. Well, let's, let's get a little geeky. Um, I had this conversation with Beck, and he collects like old Moogs and Oberheims and mm. Rollins. What do you guys have? We love the Yamaha SK line, okay. like 15, 20, 30. Uh, we use the 30 all over manners. And uh, those just are really expressive synths that kind of are modeled after the ARPs. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's cool, it's not a lot of people use them. Because uh, at first they don't seem like a, an analog synth until it, because I think they're known a lot for their organ, which is an easy sound to make. But uh, their their chip inside of them is, is especially in SK30, is a CS80 chip, which is a lot more expensive synthesizer than the SK30. How much did you get that for? I got it for free. Yeah. <laughs> See, and, and now with everybody, uh, you know, Depeche Mode goes back into their warehouse and they have 
all this gear from 80, 81, 82, yeah. you know, monophonic, yeah. you know, tune your own notes, weird little portamento keys and everything. Right. Um, the Cure goes back into their warehouse and they have the same thing. And these things are worth now to, to modern musicians like yourself, like a lot. Thousands of dollars, yeah. Thousands of dollars. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.